Welcome back here to Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora on WakeUpCallDT.com, your one-stop sports shop, as well as on MixLR.com backslash WakeUpCallDT, where you're listening worldwide, you're watching and listening on YouTube.com and Facebook.com, both backslash WakeUpCallDT. And, of course, you're here with us as well on Facebook.com backslash LiveNowDT. From inside the Cafe Kubal Studios, make sure you fill your cup up right at all their locations, 3501 James Street, 324 West Water Street, as well as 401 South Salina Street, each in Syracuse, inside of Galisano's Children's Hospital, down the road from the Dome. And we thank every everybody at uh, Galisano's Children's Hospital for what they do for our children and our families and the miracles that God works through them every day. I also want to give a special thanks to uh, 343 Fayette Street in Manliest, Cafe Kubal out there, and to the corner of Route 11 and Taft Road at their drive through location at the Sweetheart Corners in North Syracuse. With that being said, I hope Bob Holiday was listening. There will be a test at the end of this conversation. But Bob Holiday and I for W W R A L Sports. Doing great. Great to be with you. What a time! What a time! So W R A L Sports fan, a contributor, longtime broadcasting voice, longtime writing voice, longtime just sports journalist, and I had the opportunity, the blessing, to meet Bob Holiday once a Syracuse jumped into the ACC almost a decade ago. I crossed paths with Bob Holiday. We became the gentlemen that share the microphone the majority of the time in the TV room. And I, I could not be happier to share a microphone with somebody. So I appreciate him. I respect him. And he's always been good to me. And, and you know, the media is a crazy world and it's good to find good people. So with that being said, Bob, how you been? Doing great, Dan. Just, um, you know, normally I'm, um, like working on my yard now, doing lots of you know, lots of yard work and getting some extra miles in in my running and catching up on personal things that have been neglected during the basketball season. I mean, you know, we're used to having somebody play in the Final Four, but you know, having Duke and Carolina and the whole ACC having such a great tournament has put me way, way behind in personal things, but that's okay. I'm enjoying the basketball. It's been fantastic. Yeah, no, it's it's been wonderful to – see this and how deep it's gone and, and you've covered you know the the teams within North Carolina for a very long time been very devout to that and you've had uh, so much experience with them I, I'd love to get your take on I mean like to, for the people that don't know just how many years you've been covering these teams in North Carolina and just what it's been like to live in a world where North Carolina and Duke exists because, you know, one of the greatest rivalries in the history of mankind of all sports are some people argue it's the greatest of any sport. So when did it all start for you? And, and just bring us into some history of, of how many years you've been covering these teams. Yeah, I've been blessed in basketball. Uh, my first years were spent in Kentucky and Louisville. Um, I was born in 1951 and I saw three Final Fours before I was 11 years old at Freedom Hall. Incredible. Um, then we moved to Wisconsin in the heyday of the Al McGuire era. I was privileged to go to Coach Al's camp and got to be friends with his son Al Jr., Allie, um, and, and hang out with the McGuire family. And then moved to North Carolina. I, I, sorry, we moved to Virginia, but I went to North Carolina uh, to college um, in 1968. And that was when Dean Smith was first getting things rolling. And um, I saw the Final Four in 69, which is in Louisville. And um, anyway, covered started covering sports as a student. Um, I covered, you know, my first ACC tournament was 1971. And then uh, went to my first Final Four as a reporter in 1972. 
um, in Los Angeles. And so, um, and, and saw my first Carolina Duke game. Um, I know it was at the 72 Carolina Duke game. I'm, yeah, I mean, I saw Carolina Duke games as a student in, you know, 69, 70, and 71. So I, I go way back. And do you have a fondest memory or two of all your time and covering, you know, these, these teams in Carolina, especially Duke in North Carolina, do you have a moment or two that you can pinpoint? Um, not one, but let me just throw a few out. I mean, yeah. um, <laughs> the, the eight points in 17 seconds, obviously, there's never been another game like that. Um, you know, Carolina trailed Duke in Carmichael Auditorium in 1974 by eight points with 17 seconds left. There was no three-point shot. Um, Bobby Jones, who was the star of that team, had a great NBA career, um, told me that Coach Smith was actually, like, smiling uh, at, at his players during the timeout as he said, yeah, we're going to get to work on the – they worked on the kind of things in that game that you do, like, in practice. Let's pretend we're down six, you know, with, with 20 seconds left, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, they stole inbounds passes. They fouled Duke and Duke missed. They stole more inbounds passes. And then Walter Davis, uh, another guy who did pretty well in the NBA, hit a 35-foot prayer to force overtime, and they won in overtime. There's just there's never been another game like that. And that came on the heel like six weeks earlier. Uh, you know, Duke was not very good that year, um, but they played Carolina. To, and Carolina had George Carl. No, I'm sorry, George had gone by then. But anyway, Carolina you know had a good team, and, and it was a tie game um, in Cameron. Uh, with four seconds left, and Bobby Jones stole the inbounds pass and went his Duke's ball. Bobby stole the inbounds pass and laid it up at the buzzer. And so Carolina actually stole a couple of games. But Duke has had the buzzer beaters. I mean, there's like Robbie West, a little-known guy in 1972 who had a buzzer beater, to to lift a 14-12 Duke team past the North Carolina team that went to the Final Four and was ranked third in the country. Um... You go to um, the, the most famous Duke buzzer beater was Jeff Capel, um, you know, from half court on another team, Duke team that wasn't good. That was during Coach K's medical sabbatical year. They were 13 and 18, and Carolina again, of course, went to the Final Four. Um, but Capel hits a shot from mid court to force double overtime. And Jeff has told me that you know everybody sees that highlight and they forget that Duke actually lost that game. Um, other buzzer beaters, uh, well, Austin Rivers, 2012. I mean, Duke was down like double digits, and they kept coming back and coming back, and Austin Rivers lost a three-point shot over a seven-foot defender, and Duke wins at the buzzer. And then there's there's actually the, the double buzzer beater um, in 2020 where Trey Jones um, hits a jumper to tie the game. He is like at the buzzer. Carolina was, I don't know what it looked like, but nope. Trey Jones hits a, a, a jumper at the buzzer to force overtime. And then at the end of overtime, uh, Wendell Moore does his best Lorenzo Charles impression and catches Trey Jones's air ball and redirects it into the basket and Duke wins. And so that kind of stuff happens all the time. There are epic performances by Carolina players. I think back to Larry Miller, who was kind of there at the beginning, Larry almost went to Duke. Imagine how, <laughs> how that would have changed the trajectory of ACC play if he'd done that. But Larry goes 13 of 14 in the ACC championship game uh, in 1967, and that 
gives Dean Smith his first ever ACC championship. They go on to the Final Four. Probably the most memorable for Carolina fans is the Great Scott game two years later. Um, Carolina trails by 11 at halftime. Their point guard Dick Grubar is out for the season, having been injured. They're struggling. And I'll never forget, I interviewed Vic Bubas, who was the Duke coach at that time, uh, a couple of years after that game, and he says, you know, Bob, I, I looked at the Carolina bench at halftime, and they all looked like the thing was over, except Charles Scott. He said, give the ball to me, and I'll win the game, and I'm afraid that's what happened, Bubis's words. And um, Scott's performance that game is maybe the greatest second half even now, well, Randolph Childress would probably be close, but um, which I know you've seen. But um, Scott was, you know, he, he had 40 points and like 28 of them were in the second half. And Carolina came from double digits down to win handily. And then he hit another buzzer beater to against Davidson and left her to sell, who'd actually uh, thought he'd recruited. He thought he had Scott signed at Davidson. So that was... And then at the last minute, he changed to go to Carolina. So Scott propelled that team to the Final Four. So, um, And then I could go on. You know, there's um, Phil Ford on his senior day in 1978. Um, Duke, has, Duke at that point had, had not won in Carmichael since the very first year, 1966. So it had been like more than a dozen years. And they looked like they could win that game. And Ford reaches down, scores 34 points. I mean, he's kind of teary-eyed because it's his last game in Carmichael, but that was a uh, Carolina won by like a four, I think. And then Sean May, 2005, uh, Carolina had not had had trouble beating Duke at that point since Roy Williams had come back. Um, they'd lost in Durham earlier that year, didn't get off a shot, down one, and then it looked like they might lose at home. But Sean May put the team on his back, willed them 26 points, 24 rebounds, and Carolina won that game. So um, buzzer beaters for Duke, epic performances by individuals for Carolina, and um, many more memories, but those are a few. And, you know, I'm here with Bob Holiday speaking on the history of Duke in North Carolina, speaking on buzzer beaters, and speaking on your firsthand experience of it as we are here on Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora. Bob, you are such a wealth of knowledge and you know what Duke life was like before Coach K. Some people think it didn't exist, you know, and some people think that he was the coach. And people forget, you know, they think he was the coach of Duke forever, that he never coached anywhere else. What can you say about pre-Coach K and what that world was like for the Duke Blue Devils? I had a fr- I have a friend who played under Hal Bradley, who was Duke's coach in the 50s. Um, they were decent. But when, you know, the man that really built the Duke program was Vic Bubas. Um, Vic Bubas, and with all due respect to Coach K, I mean, um, Coach K would tell you that he, he, he was not the first great coach at Duke. Um, Vic Bubas had actually, he was one of the first players at NC State when um, the Gray Fox, Everett Case, um, started big-time basketball in the ACC. I mean, it, and actually, it was a Southern Conference then, but it, all the, all the great basketball we have at our conference goes back to Everett Case, who came from Indiana. He brought so many traditions with him, and he was, he was a great coach, loved to run and up and down the floor, um, the one-handed shot, um, press defenses, um, put the ball in the deep freeze when you needed to, but he was, I think, maybe the greatest promoter coach that the game has ever known. 
Um, Vic Bubis was one of his first players. I think Vic Bubis actually made the first basket in Reynolds Coliseum. So anyway, um, the time came that um, Bubis wanted to go on his own and took the job at Duke. And um, he starts promoting at Duke like Everett Case promoted at NC State. Uh, Vic Bubis had um, like luncheons for women to get them interested in the game. And once the women got interested in the game, the men, of course, were interested and the tickets sold like hot hotcakes. I mean, before Bubis came, uh, you know, you couldn't fill up the Cayman Indoor Stadium, if you can imagine that. Lots lots and lots of empty seats. But Bubis started filling it up. Uh, the program caught fire. I think in Vic Bubis's decade, it's pretty much a decade that he coached there, they lost maybe like nine games at home, something like that. It's just phenomenal. And he had great players. The first thing he did was steal Art Heyman um, from, out from under those and Frank McGuire, and that caused some hostilities between those were early hostilities between Duke and UNC. There was actually a fight uh, after that happened between Larry Brown and, and Art Heyman. They'd been buddies back in Long Island, but um, they they fought uh, in, in the early days of their uh, respective playing time at, at Duke and Carolina. Uh, Bubas brought in Jeff Bollins, a super guy from Lexington, Kentucky. Um, uh, Jay Buckley, Heck Tyson. Um, he went to the Final Four I uh, don't know how many people in your audience remember this, but but you know, UCLA uh, won the national championship um, in uh, 1964, and the team they beat was Duke. And then they won it again in 65. Um, and I believe, uh, no, Duke did not go, Duke got upset by NC State, so they didn't go that year. But, but, but Bubas continued to recruit. He brought in Jack Marin. Um, Steve Asendak, um and a couple guys I'm leaving out. But anyway, they were back in the Final Four in 66. So Vic Bubas took Duke to the Final Four like three times in the 60s. And then he decided to step on, uh, step out, move on to other things. Um, Bucky Waters took over, um, like Bucky a lot. He was a great broadcaster. Um, did not have... He had some success there, but, but not as much success as Duke was used to. Um, so he moved over into the medical field as well. Uh, and, and ultimately, Bill Foster came in. And Bill Foster built a great program. Jim Spinarco, whom we all hear calling games now on CBS, uh, was his first really big recruit. He also got Mike Jaminski, another guy we hear on uh, ACC broadcast. He had Gene Banks and Kenny Denard and uh, Bob Bender. Um, Bill Foster's 1978 team played for the national championship. Um, and they were like highly ranked all in the late seventies. And so when Foster moved on to take the job at, at South Carolina and Mike Krzyzewski was hired, Mike actually inherited a lot of talent for the first year. But the problem was that he just had talent for one year and then he had to go recruit and it took him a while, um, to, to bring in recruits, that, that could play at the level that Duke fans were used to. And he almost didn't make it. He was very fortunate to have a, a very patient athletic director, Tom Butters, who totally believed in him. Um, in 1983, when his first great recruit, recruit class were all freshmen, they lost to Virginia by 43 points, I think it was, in the ACC tournament. And a lot of the big boosters at Duke were calling for Krzyzewski to be fired. And Tom Butters' response was to, was to give Krzyzewski 
an ext- a contract extension and a raise, and it paid off um, the class of '86. And still get a little bit emotional thinking about these guys. But you know, Johnny Dawkins and Jay Billis, um, David Henderson, uh, Mark Allery, um, those guys. Um, laid the groundwork for the program and, and, um, the rest is history. Yeah. You know, and it is such a beautiful thing to look back on these moments and, and these times and, and, you know, for you to really paint this picture. And as you describe these games for, you know, people listening and, and watching to be able to just dial those back up to see those moments in their, in their head, you know, to hear those moments from when they listen on the radio, it's amazing what sports does to recall that as soon as, it's almost like, you know, you go outside and you smell the air and, and you pick up a scent and it brings you to a memory. And that's what it does. You know, when we have these conversations about sports, you know, you talk about something and somebody remembers where they were when they saw that. They remember what they heard on the radio. They remember what they saw on tele- television. Some people remember it vividly. And, you know, I, I've sat in with a lot of, of sports figures and we're doing a show somewhere out in public and somebody will come up to them and say, hey, Back in 1987, I remember this play that you had against this team and you ran to the left and I saw this. I mean, it's incredible how people don't forget and how how sports moments, music and movies and TV shows, they always, this entertainment world seems to linger. So, Bob, do you, I mean, I, I know that you've dialed up so many things for us today as we speak with Bob Holiday of WRALsportsfan.com and a longtime sports journalist here on Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora celebrating Bob Holiday and, and the history that you've gotten to live and relive over and over again in a beautiful way. Do you have one of those, you know, smell it in the air and you go back to those times? I mean, have you gotten nostalgic, you know, even with Coach K, this being his last season? Is 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 there is there a Bob Holiday sniff it in the air and, and go back in time and say, wow, or, or is that something maybe with Coach K where you are taking in the moment and taking a deep breath because you know that this is is coming to a close soon? Uh, do you have any of those moments? And, and if you do, is it about Coach K right now? You know, I'm, uh, of course, I went to Carolina yeah. um, and, and was on the Carolina Network in the 70s. And um with Woody Durham, and one of the things I have always appreciated about Coach K is that he never held that against me. Um, huh. You know, he, he he and I had a great relationship while I was uh, covering Duke basketball as a full-time employee, and, you know, occasionally I still get to uh, cover games and ask questions, and, um, you know, he's always been very fair to me, and um, I feel like we've always had a great relationship. He actually, when I decided to retire from WRL full-time, um, in 2009, he actually called me um, to to uh, wish me well, and um, that meant so much. That meant so much. So, um, I have a high regard for Mike Krzyzewski. And one one concern about have you know I have about this game is that um, a lot of my friends at Carolina actually hate Coach K. I mean, I, these are people who who are like really reasonable about everything else but they can't stand Mike Krzyzewski. And um, I just disagree with him. I said, you know, you haven't seen what I've seen. Um, so that makes the, you know, that that part of this game is difficult for me. Um, and I would say that, you know, I've, I've, I've seen some ugliness at Cameron Indoor Stadium. 
yeah. you know, back in the day, Duke fans had to cheer you. Why? You ain't got no alibi. You're ugly. Carolina ugly. So that, you know, that wasn't very nice. But at the same time, I've never seen or heard anything like the reception, um, the reprehensible reception that Mike Krzyzewski got when he came to the Smith Center um, on February 5th. I'm not going to say what I can't say on a family radio show what the fans <laughs> said, but yeah. it was it was terrible. And um, and the fans were so out of control that they uh, even booed the governor. Uh, and Chapel Hill is a liberal place, and the governor is a Democrat, so that was a surprise. But they were booing the governor while he was announcing that the state had renamed Rhodes in honor of Dean Smith and Roy Williams. And you know, I just, I'm, I'm very concerned about crowd, you know, about you know the fan base at Carolina and, and probably at Duke too. There's a post from J.J. Reddick. <laughs> about how Carolina fans hate Duke, hate, hate Duke more than Duke fans hate Carolina because Carolina has Carolina fans have an inferiority complex. I disagree with the inferiority complex. I've never heard that about UNC. Maybe a superior a superiority complex or um, you know arrogance, but but haven't heard you know, there's no inferiority complex, but I do think based on what I've seen lately, that maybe UNC fans hate Duke more than the other way around. And I think that's just, you know, Mike Krzyzewski being there for 42 years, beating Carolina 50 times in 97 meetings. That's never happened before. And so I think, unfortunately, people have um, channeled the frustration of those losses into hatred for him, and it's just, it's not fair, it's not right. So um, that's something that I hope doesn't blow up this weekend. Yeah, and you were talking about that, you know, the concern of this and the craziness of the fact that Duke and North Carolina have had this rivalry forever and a day, and they have never met in the NCAA tournament. And so it's, you know, a time for them to meet, Final Four of 358 Division I men's basketball schools. So to meet of, of, of 350, get it down to four, to meet for the first time ever and do it at a time where Coach K – is on his retirement tour it is very poetic it's very cinematic what do you think of all this and and does it baffle you that this has never happened before that they've never met each other in the tournament because when i you know when you hear that i'm like no 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 i gotta go back and check that i gotta check that i gotta you know go go look in history that can't be right so what do you think about that and then secondly the fact that this is going to happen at a time where Coach K is on his way out. And remember, North Carolina went into Cameron Indoor, and in the day that they're supposed to be honoring Coach K's final game at Cameron, North Carolina took him out. So this game's got that behind it. It's got the fact that it's never happened in the tournament behind it. It's got Coach K. If they knock him out, they've knocked him out twice this year. If they knock him out, North Carolina can say that they ended the coaching career of Coach K before that national championship, that they're the team that did it. If Coach K wins, then he's got an opportunity to go after another ring in his swan song. There's a lot of storylines here, Bob. What's your take? Yeah, so many storylines. Uh, it, 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 it's not really that surprising, Dan, that the teams haven't met. I mean, like until 1975, um, it, yeah, it, the NCAA tournament was was a one-bid league, and um, – you know, I, I see Shashevsky's numbers compared to John Wooden's. 
Um, I have to say, yeah, this is a, a quick aside, but important for me to, to get to point out that you know, John Wooden did his work in the 25-team NCAA tournament. Things were so much different then. Um, you, you, you won your conference championship, and then you played it. You got invited to the tournament, and you stayed in your region. Like UCLA would win their, turn, their league every year, and then they would play games usually in California, but always in the West Coast. And they only had to win two games, Dan, to go to the Final Four. Can you imagine that? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so you had fewer games and less travel. Yeah. Um, now you have many more games and much more travel. I mean, like, you know, Duke had, you know, their first week wasn't too bad going to Greenville, South Carolina, but then to San Francisco and now to New Orleans. I mean, John Wooden never had to do anything like that. Um, so you know, the fact that, you know, to me, Mike Krzyzewski's, um 13 Final Fours are greater than John Wooden's 12 Final Fours by quite a bit. Um, Dean Smith, I think, went to 11 Final Fours. Some of his were in the, the days where things were simpler, although a lot of his were uh, in later times also. But, but getting to the Final Four now is just so much more difficult than it was in the John Wooden era. So I just wanted, And Wooden was a great coach and a great person. I actually had the occasion to, um, to 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 be at a banquet with him one time and he was uh, you know remember asking him about um, you see, you know, all those earthquakes in California and he said yeah maybe but I was always a lot more concerned about tornadoes in Indiana <laughs> really good man that so nothing against John Wooden but just very different era so uh, but anyway yeah um, Duke and Carolina oh and with seating you know, Duke and Carolina are usually both like one and two seeds, and so they're not going to play each other in an early round. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that they haven't met. They almost did once, and I want to do a brief preliminary. You know, they almost met in 1991, and then um, the, the, the rivalry got to a fairly ugly point on the court in 1989. Um, UNC, to be honest, had a team that um, they had some players that, that – people in the media didn't like very well. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we just didn't know them that well, but um, they, they were, they were, um, they were kind of physical and, and um, um, not that nice. And Duke, meanwhile, um, Duke's fans really irritated Carolina. Uh, one of Carolina's players was a guy named J.R. Reed. And when Carolina would go to Cameron Indoor Stadium, Duke fans would hold up signs, J.R. can't, R-E-A-D, his name was spelled R-E-I-D. Well, that really infuriated Dean Smith, who's, um, you know, he helped integrate Chapel Hill, and he's you know, you know, very sensitive about race relations, and he was very offended by that, and he, he managed to release um, J.R. Reed's SAT scores juxtaposed with Danny Ferry's, and he had recruited Danny, and so he knew them, and that stirred things up even more. And so when the teams played in Atlanta in 1989 for the ACC championship game, it was just a really, 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 really fierce physical game, the most physical game of its kind that I've ever seen. And the coaches actually confronted one another at one point during the game. So the rivalry, in my view, was not in a great place in 1989. And then 1991, they both go to the Final Four. Um, Carolina was playing Kansas, coached by Roy Williams. Duke was playing Las Vegas, uh, which at that time I think had won 34 in a row and had beaten Duke soundly the previous year in Denver. 
like by 30 points in the greatest blowout in NCAA tournament history. So we didn't really think that the two teams would both win. Um, we thought maybe Carolina might get by Kansas, but nobody thought Duke could beat Vegas. Um, but we really didn't want to see at that point a Duke-Carolina national championship game because of how things were in 1989. We just didn't think the rivalry could handle it. And as it turned out, uh, UNC lost to Kansas, um, and then Duke beat Vegas, um, and then Duke beat Kansas for the national championship. So that it was close, but didn't happen. And um, but now all these years later, here we are. Yeah, you know, and, and to see the fact that it's happening now. When this tournament started, Bob, you know, were you surprised at all that you know we're living in a world where where this is? You know where this happened. That that Coach K in his final season is here in the you know in the in the final four. I mean, to me, when the when everything came out and the brackets released and the seedings done, I just said I was like, if Coach K makes it to the final four, I'm not going to be surprised at all. It's just it's it's too perfect of something to happen in this situation. Have it be Duke, North Carolina after the words were said. That's, you know, and and I think it was Ben Carroll that might have said it, where he said that he wanted North Carolina in that ACC championship game. And then they end up getting Virginia Tech instead. And so now you get North Carolina, you got what you asked for, and there's more on the line riding on this one being in the NCAA tournament. But when this tournament began, was there anything about you that thought that this would, you know, not happen? I mean, it seems like when Coach K needs to get something done, it usually gets done. After the ACC tournament, I didn't know what to expect. I was just hoping for some success. I mean, um, ACC basketball has been, uh, at least in terms of perception, on the decline since 2019. Um, you know, we didn't get to have the 2020 tournament, and then um, last year's tournament was a disaster for the league. Um, you know, the ACC did continue its its uh, long string. As you may know, Dan, the ACC has sent at least one team to the Sweet 16 every year since uh, Black Sunday, which was in 1979 when, when Duke and Carolina were both like number one seeds and, and lost in Raleigh on the same day and the ACC was out of the tournament. Since then, though, the ACC has always sent at least one team. And last year, if I recall, uh, both Florida State and Syracuse advanced to the Sweet 16. So that streak continued, but all the other ACC teams lost the first game, and so the ACC's overall record, anytime the ACC doesn't at least go 500 in the NCAA tournament, it stands out because that doesn't happen that often. So you know, the ACC did very poorly in the NCAA tournament last year and then did even worse in non-conference games this year. Every ACC team had bad losses in November and December except Duke, and then Duke had losses in the conference, but by then... And as it turns out, those weren't bad losses. But because the ACC was perceived as being a bad conference, because of its poor showing in November and December, they seemed like bad losses at the time. So, uh, and the ACC only got four at-large bids. Virginia Tech only got in because they won the tournament. And so I didn't really know what to expect when the tournament started. I was just hoping, you know, let's just go 500 at least. Let's just get a couple, you know, a team or two this week, 16. Um, but... Yeah, th- this has been an incredible tournament for the Atlantic Coast Conference. 
Um, starting with Notre Dame, I give Notre Dame a lot of credit. They set their standard. You know, they had to play. They're an 11 seed in spite of all they. You know, they beat Kentucky, and yet they're an 11 seed, and they won a play-in game, and then won another game, and they would have beaten Texas Tech, except the refs didn't. Uh, the refs allowed mayhem in the final two minutes of the game, and Texas Tech is big and strong, and so um, Notre Dame couldn't quite stand up. Um, but anyway, the Irish started off going two and one. Virginia Tech, I think, was played out. Um, they played four great games in Brooklyn, and they didn't have anything left. Uh, but everybody else, I mean, look at Miami. Three wins, and they're leading Kansas at halftime. Yeah, they got uh, taken to the woodshed in the second half, but great performance by Miami. And then Carolina and Duke have both been great. I, I didn't know what to expect from North Carolina. You know, they, they played great at Duke. They throttled a Virginia team that went to the third round of the NIT, but then they were not so good against Virginia Tech, and so... You know, when they're playing Marquette, which, um, you know, a team, a school with which UNC has some history, I didn't know what to expect. And, of course, they're playing Baylor, and not many people expected them to get past Baylor. So um, you, I, I can't say that on Selection Sunday that I expected to see North Carolina in the Final Four. That's for sure, Dan. Um, I thought Duke had a solid chance, but, again, um, the Blue Devils were kind of taking two steps forward and one step backward. I mean, they... We didn't see the kind of defense from Duke in against Carolina or in the ACC tournament that we saw in early and mid-February when they were kind of taking control of the conference. So didn't know what to expect, but but uh, both Carolina and Duke have played fantastic games in the in the uh, NCAA tournament, and can't wait to see what happens Saturday night. Yeah, it's going to be terrific, and and it's it's such a it, it's it's a beautiful time of year, and it's a great way to see. I mean, it, it is. It's just it's fitting. And I wanted to see Gonzaga Duke again. They had an instant classic at the beginning of the season on conference, and we didn't get to see that courtesy of Arkansas. But to see you know now Duke being there, North Carolina rising as an eight seed. I thought Baylor was in trouble. Whoever won that eight nine matchup, and Baylor definitely felt that, and they felt it quick. So, you know, Bob, as we look at some of the history of the ACC, there's a lot of things that are happening this year that are worth noting. And one of those things, uh, and you had mentioned the teams that got in this year and Notre Dame is a play-in team and, and, and how far they got and how they almost made it a, a Notre Dame-Duke matchup in the NCAA tournament. You know, looking at uh, this is the 30th time in the NCAA tournament for men's basketball that at least five ACC teams have earned berths. Virginia Tech, Notre Dame, Miami, North Carolina, and Duke all made it in. Miami getting to their first Elite Eight ever, and then seeing, you know, what North Carolina has done, which I which I think, you know, for them to advance to where they are right now, what is it? It's, it's, it's Coach K's 13th Final Four, which is a record. It's North Carolina's 21st as a team, which is a record. So you see all these records set by the ACC. The team that wins the ACC tournament is the one that's out earliest. Notre Dame, the play-in team, is the one that continued to push forward and keep things interesting against Texas Tech. I want to address that right now. That not only is this the 30th time that we've seen five ACC teams get into the NCAA tournament, but I don't know about you, Bob, but I never use the words... Now, I might talk about fouls and say, well, you know, you, you can't have guys play soft. Like, I want to be physical. I've said that about wanting to see more physical play in certain instances or certain things I didn't think were fouls. But I never called the ACC soft. 
I never called it a down year. I never called it weak. I never called it a season that's a forgettable season. We've heard so many things about, wow, the ACC's down, the ACC's weak, the ACC's not that good, the ACC's soft, the ACC can't do anything. The ACC may not send any teams in outside of their tournament champion. Those words were said, those sentiments were shared. And then the world had to look at the fact that five, uh, three out of those five teams were advancing forward, and now half of the Final Four is from the ACC, and it's not the first time it happened. This is the seventh time in history in the NCAA tournament for men's basketball in Division One that ACC teams have been half of the Final Four. North Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia did it in 81. Duke and Georgia Tech did it in 90. Duke and North Carolina did it in 91. Duke and Maryland did it in 2001. Duke and Georgia Tech did it in 2004. The last time it happened, I was down in Houston when North Carolina and Syracuse did it in 2016. So this tournament showed that the ACC wasn't as soft down or less than as some people said they were. What are your thoughts on that? And what are your thoughts on the fact that you know, there's a bunch of talking heads out there that thought the ACC was way too soft and way too weak this year. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, you know, first off, um, the ACC is is currently 13-3 and three in this tournament. Um, it eliminated the SEC. It eliminated the Big Ten. Um, you know, the Big 12 is still standing in the Big East, but, but the ACC has reigned supreme in this tournament, regardless of what happens from here. Um, the ACC is guaranteed at least one more win. So the worst that the ACC can go now is 14-5 and five in this tournament, and it could go 15-4 and four if either Duke or North Carolina should win the national championship. Um, I think, here's the thing, that the, the interconference games in November and December have become a really big measuring tool, I think, or important part of the measuring process for the NCAA Tournament Selection Committee. Uh, and I get that. It, it's logical. Um, the problem is that given the dynamics of college basketball, teams aren't necessarily at their best to start the season anymore. Uh, you know, a few years ago, um, certainly in, in the heyday of Dean Smith or Mike Krzyzewski, you know, you've got, you know, you build your program, you, um, you, you know, you, you're going to lose a few players, so you, you know, bring in five more. They all stay together. That was different. You know, back then, November, December, really were a good indicator of how good a team was. Um, and I think it, that was true for Gonzaga because Gonzaga had so many players returning. But you look at, at, at teams of the ACC, most of them had major roster makeover. And um, that's what led to all those lost non-conference games, I believe. You had... Um, you know, coaches are experienced. They're trying to find their best lineup. Um, you know, because of COVID, maybe time over the summer was somewhat limited. Trying to find your best lineup. Um, you know, you've got some new players in from the transfer portal. Um, you've got some new freshmen. Um, I, I think maybe take North Carolina as a case in point. Um, a lot of losses from last year's team, uh, and a new coach. A new coach with a new system, new assistants. Um, Carolina started Dawson Garcia, a transfer for Marquette, in 12 of the first 16 games. Well, 
he was inconsistent, but, you know, good at times. But then he had a concussion. And after coming back from the concussions, he was not good at all. And then he had a family illness and left for the season. You had another, um, you know, Tar Heel player, um, a key reserve, um, who, Anthony Harris, who um, um, was lost for the second semester. Um, so that's a loss of depth. Um, it wasn't really until, and, and then you had Puff Johnson, who um, he was on the roster last year but didn't play because of injury, so he's like a new player. Then you had a couple new freshmen. And so it wasn't really until Janu- you know, early January where, where Brady Manick became a starter and UNC started to become the team that it later became. And even then, you still had you know, some juggling um, of bench players trying to see who uh, could could help effectively off the bench. And I think that the North Carolina scene was not unusual in the conference. I, I think it happened a little bit at Miami early on. Um, it definitely happened uh, at Virginia for sure. Um, you know, I think that some of the schools had COVID pauses. I think there were a lot of extenuating circumstances that caused the ACC to lose all those non-conference games. And again, almost every every team except for Duke had bad losses. And so I think the committee concluded that the ACC was just not good. And so when ACC teams beat up on each other, well, that's, you know, mediocre beating mediocre. Uh, when in fact, you can clearly, part of the reason why Duke is in the Final Four is because of the quality of competition it faced in the ACC. But the committee didn't appreciate that. No, you know, and, and, and I think that being able to see this now just shows you, you know, all these years the ACC gets respect, the year that they don't, look at what they've done. And to see how successful they have been is just a true testament to the fact of, of you know, like you said, how how things have gone, you know, and how coaches have stepped up and, and how, you know, these teams have evolved inside of the ACC and, you know, that it isn't easy to walk over this and that. You know, there's certain teams like NC State, in Florida State that dropped off a little bit this year, but then you see the rise in some positive play in Wake Forest, and you see, obviously, the rise in some positive play in Miami and them making their own history, as I had mentioned before. You see Syracuse play their minds out. Again, I mean, look at it like this. Syracuse forces overtime in Chapel Hill at North Carolina, and that's one of the teams in the Final Four. Syracuse pushes Duke to the brink without Buddy Bayheim, and that's one of the teams in the Final Four. So, you know, was the ACC that bad when people look at that and say, well, they, you know, they, they lost to this team in conference and they lost to that team? Or were the, was the conference as a whole with 15 schools just on any given night really maybe evenly matched? And people are beating. We know now, Syracuse yeah. should have been in the NCAA tournament and so should Wake Forest and maybe Virginia. So um, the committee got it wrong. Um, I think next year they need to go more with the eye test. I mean, I think with the, the new dynamics where you have so many players coming in uh, through the, not only the transfer portal, but also the extra year of eligibility that the NCA gave because of the pandemic. Um, teams are more in a state of flux early in the year. You can't judge how a team is going to be in March based on how they do in, in November and December like you once could. And um, so I think that I think the committee needs to go more to the eye test. Oh, and the other thing is that because of expanded conference schedules, you don't see big non-conference games in February anymore. Once you did, you know, I can remember you know, Duke had the great series with St. John's. 
uh, a few years ago. And one of the reasons Mike Krzyzewski did that was to, to play somebody outside the ACC and to give his um, players a feel for playing a non-conference team and I think to give the committee a feel for relative strengths. Um, you don't see that now, and I don't know that you will with the schedules that we have. So the committee is going to have to be they're going to have to do a better job of watching teams in conference and not not you know not fall victim to predisposition like happened this year. Yeah, you know, and and I agree with you. You know, and Coach K said it in the answer to my question in in the ACC tournament. We were down in Brooklyn at the Barclays Center. You know, he said, "I I wish there was a way." to get this Syracuse team in. I wish they could get find a way to get them into the NCAA tournament. And, you know, I agree. I mean, there's so how many times in recent history has Syracuse been that team that people are thinking, oh, they don't deserve to get in. They're a fringe team. And those years when they're the fringe, you know, you throw them in a 10 seed, you throw them in a play-in game, you, you put me down in Dayton in the first four and covering them and, and getting to see them play. They're such a dangerous team. And I go back to 2016, the last time that half of the Final Four, as I mentioned, was comprised of the ACC because it's happening again this year. Six years ago when that happened, I was the only person in the media to put, to pick Syracuse at the top of the ACC with North Carolina behind them, one and two. I got ridiculed for it locally, probably around the world. God only knows. And my fa- and my dad was laughing because I don't pick Syracuse because it's my hometown. I've never picked them to finish first in the ACC except for that year. And I picked them because in the last second I said, you know what? I think they got too much. You know, I like Tyler Lydon, Malachi Richardson. I like what Trevor Cooney's doing. You know, I, I'm looking at Mike Benajay. They, and I had a reason from top to bottom of the guys returning, the guys coming in, what they were capable of. And I had an entire entire, I didn't make it without doing my research, and I had an entire platform to back it up of all of my bullet points. And so I remember that, you know, going back to that, that I was actually sick. So I had to make my vote from afar. I wasn't able to go to that media day. I stayed home. I don't want to get anybody sick. It was like October 28th, right after my birthday. And so I'm home, and I didn't know any of this stuff was happening, and people are saying this, that, whatever. Well, the local newspaper picks it up, and they say, hey, we're going to write a story about you. And they gave me the notion, like, we're going to write the story whether or not you want us to. And you can either give us quotes or not. And I was like, well, I know they're going to misquote me. And I know they're going to try and make me look stupid. And I know that they've already decided how they're going to write the story probably. But I'm going to give them my quotes. And I gave them everything. And then what I did was I wrote my own story on my website, on our because we have over 500 articles on wakeupcalldt.com. And so I wrote my own story and I said, here's all the reasons. Because I know the paper's going to not give a bunch of them and they're going to try and cut them up or whatever, make me look stupid. They only gave like two of my reasons, which made me look somewhat unintelligent. And so I said to everybody, this is what I actually said. Well, the story that came out is they said, mystery man reveals himself. You know, guy in the media, you know, person in the media reveals that he's the one. And I said, mystery man, I posted publicly my preseason picks on my website they were there for eight days I wasn't a mystery to anybody it just took you eight days to find it and during the season my mom's laughing and she's going holy you know what you might you might be right and then my dad said to me he's laughing and we're watching this and he's like what are they going to do when you're right and later on in the season he's like wow Danny's like this this is serious like you might really you know have to have to do something about this and they make it to the final four 
of over 300 teams in the nation, and my dad's in Houston in the stands, and I'm in Houston at the game, and and I'm sitting on press row, and I said to myself, none of those people are going to ask me about my thoughts. Nobody else is going to give me credit. That newspaper is never going to come back to me. So I went back to that story, and I put, in case you forgot what I said, and picking Syracuse to be at the top of the ACC with North Carolina, saying those to me are the top two teams in the conference, well, they were. And they made it to the Final Four. And in 2016, Bob, I can proudly tell you that not only was I proud of the team that I believed in, but I was also proud of the fact that in a world where everybody's got an opinion and nobody's ever wrong about anything, I was proud to stick by my guns, and I'm still waiting for my apology letters. (laughs) That's how it goes. Um, Syracuse, once they're in the NCAA tournament, is a difficult out. And uh, so, yeah, anytime they make it, they're a threat to go deep. So in closing here, Bob, as we look toward this game, going to North Carolina for you and, and, and having that in your history and being a proud Tar Heel and then also covering Coach K and, and building respect and rapport with him, to see this game finally happen, what are you most looking forward to and is this the perfect way for Coach K to go out? Oh, it's the perfect way. Um, I think because of the fact that um, Duke lost his last home game in Cameron, this is a chance for redemption. Um, and so I'm eager to see, uh, and, and you know, Paul Benkara said it at the ACC tournament, we want UNC. They didn't get UNC then, but they're going to get them now. Duke will be primed. Um, Dean Smith used to always talk about the psychological advantage. Um, I'm going to interrupt myself here, Dan, but it's a good story. Yeah. In 1978, I'm sorry, 1979, Jim Spinarco, senior, uh, CBS commentator Jim, who was a uh, high school teammate of Michael Korn of UNC from Jersey City, um, Jim Spinarco's senior night, Dean Smith decides that he does not want to play against the Duke zone. Um, Duke got the opening tip and scored. Uh, led to nothing, and so uh, under the rules of the time, if you're tied, or if, if the team that wants to draw the other team out of the zone is ahead, you know, the team in the zone has to come out and play. But UNC was down to nothing, so Duke didn't have to come out of the zone, um, but Dean tried to draw him out of the zone anyway, and Carolina wound up holding the, holding the ball for, I don't know, 11 minutes, 10 minutes, maybe 12 minutes. A guy named Rich Yonaker decides, I don't know if he was tired of holding the ball or if he thought he, if he felt it, but he puts up a jump shot, Dan, and it's an air ball. It's a total air ball. And Duke goes down and scores again, and Duke led 7 to nothing in halftime. 7 to nothing in halftime in 1979. When Rich Yonaker came out for the second half, the, the Cameron Crazies, they weren't called that then, but they, they serenaded him. Air ball, air ball. That's the night the air ball chant was born. There actually was a second air ball chant in 1980 when Rich Honecker came to Cameron. It was an up-tempo air ball. It was air ball, clap, clap, air ball, clap, clap, air ball. Anyway, um, they played even Steven in the second half. Duke won 47-40. They met a week later in the ACC championship game. Dean Smith believed dearly in the psychological advantage. He hated to play a team a third time after he'd beaten them twice, 
<clears throat> because they had the psychological advantage. But he was really ready. He knew his team would be ready to play Duke in the ACC championship game because of the embarrassment of the previous week. And UNC went out and beat Duke in the championship game. Um, the signature moment was Dudley Bradley, a six-seven player, dunking over Big Mike Jaminski, and that <clears throat> that uh, shot was actually on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And so UNC won the championship. It was atonement, which is a, a, a common theme in this series. Uh, as a quick aside, um, that may have been the Sports Illustrated jinx because that was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. The next week, both Duke and UNC lost in Black Sunday, <laughs> the last time the ACC failed to make the sweet, uh, have one team in the Sweet 16. But anyway, atonement. And so I think that Duke will have a great sense of atonement um, <clears throat> Saturday night. And, and, and I look to see how the Blue Devils play. Um, I'm also eager to see who Leaky Black guards. Leaky Black, I think, might be, he didn't get enough credit for his defense during the season. Like when Corey Alexander was talking about his best defensive players, he did not mention Leaky Black, which surprised me. But anyway, I think Leaky has, proved, has proven his medal um, uh, in the Duke game uh, in Durham, where um, A.J. Griffin was held to five points. Um, and I think in every single NCAA tournament game, Leaky Black has shut down the opponent's best player. Uh, but there's only one Leaky. Leaky, can, he can guard A.J. Griffin. He could guard Paolo Bencaro, and he's guarded Paolo and has held him down somewhat. Um, he could guard Wendell Moore. But uh, Duke has more good offense players than UNC has Leaky Black, so um, Duke's going to have somebody who's going to have a hot hand. But I'm, I'm curious to see who Leaky Black scores. Um, I'm eager to, uh, to who uh, Leaky Black defends. I'm eager to see how players respond to the dome background. Um, in UNC history, there's there's a lot of cases of, you know, like Shawn Williams going and Rick Fox going like three for 20 <laughs> from outside because they don't get used to the background. So we'll, you know, we'll play it. But on the other hand, Donald Williams did great in the Superdome in 1993 and UNC won it all. So um, how will players adjust to the background? I'm interested to see that. Um, those are... Uh, those are definitely a few of my thoughts and um, can't wait for tip-off. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. And, Bob, as always, you never disappoint. I mean, the the way that you can just pick these things up like they happened yesterday is absolutely incredible. You make me want to go back and watch every single game. Like, I literally just want to spend today and tomorrow and part of Saturday just going back and just getting on YouTube and going through history and just seeing all these moments and all of these games of Duke in North Carolina en route to the game that we've never seen in the NCAA tournament. We're about to see it now. And I got to tell you, you know, you being a Tar Heel alum, looking at Hubert Davis, I mean, what I loved about the fact of him going to the Final Four in his first season as a head coach, he's been at North Carolina for a long time there with Roy Williams. I loved seeing Roy in the stands. I loved, I love, and hopefully I'll have another time to do this, I love every time I get to speak with Roy Williams and, you know, getting to talk with him off the air down at Orlando Pro Summer League for the NBA a few years back when the Magic hosted. And, you know, he's and that was right after his knee surgery. He's been incredible. I still remember the first time I asked him a question when I was sitting in the back of the room and just really like almost brought to tears because to me, you know, interviewing Roy, that was one of 
that's one of my white whales, right? And, and Coach K and, and Jim Beheim and Jay Wright and Tom Izzo and, and so on and so forth. And to see Roy in the stands be so supportive, to see Hubert doing it in his first year where, I mean, I'm sure people believed in him. And at the same time, how many times do we see, you know, a protege able to go and, and have success at all sometimes, let alone immediate and to do that and see him cry. And, and he kept saying to the reporter, talk to my players. Don't talk to me. Talk to them. Talk to these guys. And and I just, I, I just felt that. I felt like he was just genuinely happy, excited, emotional. And he just, he didn't want anything to be about him. He was like, just talk to my players. Like they did it. And I just, I, I feel so happy for Hubert Davis. And I loved that moment watching that in, in real time. Couple of quick points in closing. Yeah. Uh, Roy and I both tried out for the freshman team at Carolina in 1968. Roy made it. I didn't. Roy was quick. Um, I'd grown up in Wisconsin playing kind of half court basketball. Uh, you know, going to the Al McGuire basketball school and so forth. Um, and I knew I was in trouble. The first thing that we did at freshman tryout practice was one on one full court. <laughs> Roy was quick, and um, I was uh, a forward in a guard's body. So. Um, but anyway, we, we've talked about what those trials were like and how difficult, and that, that was very cool. Um, of course, Roy was the coach in 1991 that, that prevented UNC from reaching the championship game against Duke. Uh, he was coaching Kansas at the time. Uh, Hubert Davis was playing for North He was one of North Carolina's stars in 1991, and he was lightly recruited, really had to um, work very hard to convince Dean Smith that he deserved a scholarship, even though his uncle Walter had been a star. So um, there, you know, some connections there. But uh, anyway, mentioning growing up, going to the, the, the Al McGuire uh, basketball school, Al McGuire is the only coach I could think of, Dan, maybe you know another one, who announced his retirement before the season and then won the national championship. Um, John Wooden... Uh, let his players know, like, after the semifinal game, you know, after they beat Louisville in 1975, he told them, you know, great game. Um, I'm so proud of the la- of you, the last team I will ever coach. And so they knew going into the championship game against Kentucky that he was going to coach one more game. But I would argue that presiding over a team for an entire season – when, when they know you're a lame duck versus one game is entirely different. Uh, Al McGuire actually had second thoughts. Um, he said a couple times during the, the 1976-77 season that you know maybe it wasn't the right move to announce my retirement before because now my players don't fear me. And Al McGuire was the kind of coach who wouldn't have a curfew on New Year's Eve, but he would have a 6 a.m. practice <laughs> on New Year's Day. And so... You know, you, you better not do anything too crazy. That's kind of how he handled things. Or um, uh, I'll tell you a story that's never been told. I was in his locker room. Uh, his son, Allie, and I were good friends. Um, I was in his locker room before Marquette played South Carolina in 1971, number one versus number two. And, you know, he talked a little bit about the game against the Gamecocks. He said, just play the regular game. Just, you know, a few more people watching that city. He said, all right, any questions? About the game? All right, I want to talk about this upcoming trip. 
they were going to be going to, to, to Nevada to play Nevada Reno. He says, players, fellas, if you don't learn anything else, know this. But gambling in Reno is honky-tonk. If you says, got to gamble, go to Vegas or Tahoe, obviously I won't be with you. Let's go get him. <laughs> that was Al McGuire. He was just, he was uh, so different than anybody else. Um, but Al um, got things going late in the season. And the, the players in the final games really wanted to play for him. They had incentive. Bo Ellis had tried out for the Olympic team under Dean Smith. Dean Smith made all the players run a mile um, on the track. And um, this was at NC State where they were trying out. Bo Ellis took one lap around the track, said, heck with this, and kept running into the parking lot, left. And Dean Smith didn't see him again until Bo Ellis erased <laughs> Uh, Bruce Buckley shot at the critical time in the 1977 championship game. Butch Lee, um, whose, whose son Matthew played so well for St. Peter's, Butch Lee had an even greater motivation. He didn't even get a, a, an invite to the trials. And so he wound up playing for Puerto Rico, and they almost upset the U.S. in the 1976 Olympics. So a lot of motivation in that game. But anyway, Marquette won it for Al. There's never really been anything like it that I know of, Dan, until Mike Krzyzewski now. And so I'm eager to see, can a second coach manage the incredible nuances of, of being a lame duck, a retiree, and still trying to win it all? One other thing. North Carolina has an incredible record in New Orleans. Um, UNC is like 13-0 all-time against Tulane, and I think six of those games were in New Orleans. Um, in my college days, I covered the Sugar Bowl basketball tournament, which was in New Orleans. Uh, UNC won two games there. UNC won a couple more games. Um, and this is a note that Syracuse people would be interested in. Um, Roy Danforth, the coach that preceded the legendary Jim Beheim, landed at Tulane in 1976. And Roy Danforth was a great coach. Um, he, he, he took Carolina to four overtimes in New Orleans in 1976. And that was a, a UNC team that had four Olympians on it. So great game. UNC won that. They beat Tulane in 78. And then, of course, they're um, 4-0 in, um, in Final Fours in New Orleans. I texted Steve Kirster, UNC's sports information director, and said, is UNC undefeated in, order, in New Orleans? I, don't, I can't find a loss. And he texted back. They lost to Penn State in the re in the first second round in the Matt Doherty era, two thousand one. So UNC is like twelve, thirteen, and one all time in New Orleans. So, um, Dan, it goes both ways. Karma <laughs> for Duke, karma for Carolina. We shall see. We definitely will. And as always, Bob Holiday, WRALSportsfan.com, longtime sports journalist and somebody that I truly respect and consider a friend on and off the courts and fields of life. So, Bob, thank you for everything you brought to today's show. Literally a special within a special within a special. So I, I'm, I'm proud, I'm grateful, and I'm, I'm just thankful for all that you have brought to the table. I'm so happy that God crossed our paths and I always look forward to seeing you, and it's always good to catch up with you whenever we can. My pleasure, Dan. Happy, happy April. It's about to be here. Yes, sir. Well, listen, take care of yourself, and I look forward to talking with you soon. As, as much as Fool's Day is, is right around the corner here, there is no joke we're going to see Duke and North Carolina 
And in a year in a year where people didn't expect it to happen, when all these other years they thought it was going to, I find it incredible and exciting that we get to see it right here, right now, at this time, with Hubert Davis on the other side of Coach K. And Hubert's already figured out how to do it once. We'll see if he can do it again. As always, Bob, take care of yourself, stay safe, and we'll talk soon. All right, Dan. Thanks. Be well. You too.